Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, my name is Christian and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. Returning all the way back to classic rock for this bout, our third look back on that period of time, because really, what kind of audio judo spinoff would this be if we didn't? We'll cover country and psych pop next. Don't worry, we won't get stuck in this trend forever. But today we're covering a band that I've heard probably 10 or so songs from, but I've played the crap out of on Guitar Hero. This week's album is Regatta de Blanc by The Police. Now, what the hell is a Regatta de Blanc? It sounds like a fancy schmancy wine, but it's really The Police's second studio album, released in 1979. The main single on the album, none other than the mighty Message in a Bottle. This is widely regarded as one of their best albums, with many album ranking lists having it in their top 500, believed to be instrumental to the development of other variations of white reggae to follow. It itself saw a pretty substantial departure from their debut album, more diverse in its production and sound while also having a much cleaner mix. It's easy to compare the two sounds as well, because the actual last song on this album was a cut track from the debut, existing in a wildly different musical space. It only took four total weeks to record, with a relatively small, less than 10,000 pound budget, yet still went on to sell millions of copies and be certified platinum in Australia, Canada, France, the Netherlands, New Zealand, the UK, and the US. It had their first number one chart peak as well, sitting on top in the UK, Australia, and the Netherlands. And that popularity only ever grew. And it grew into an absolute monster. The Police, for those who don't know, are a post-punk reggae-slash-hard rock band from the UK that was active only from 1977 to 1986. That's nine years. That's only nine years. In this incredibly short amount of time, the band created five studio albums that have since gone on to sell over 75 million copies, one of the best-selling bands of all time. That's one police album per 100 people in the world. 
in the world with a catalog and active run as small as they had, this is an unbelievable feat. Now, the band almost only consisted of lead singer and bassist Sting, drummer Stuart Copeland, and guitarist Andy Summers. They've won five Grammys, though none for their albums, surprisingly, and have been inducted in the American Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as well as many people's top 100 bands of all time. The Police has performed on six official tours, including a reunion one in 2008, totaling over 800 shows, another massive number for a band with five albums from the mid-70s, early 80s. Needless to say, they've made a mark. For those of you who don't necessarily know what reggae is and its influence here, though, reggae is a genre with roots in Jamaica as pretty much half of all genres seem to be. A style born in the late 60s, reggae is probably one of the most stable versions of these earlier genres, with the sound of modern reggae fairly similar to the original version. Largely connected to social commentary due to its Rastafarian roots, it has since been merged with many different genres and localities to become a fairly far-reaching yet recognizable sound. Characterized by many common R&B and Calypso elements, it does have unique features such as its staccato offbeat, slower relaxed rhythm, and heavier bass sound. Reggae rock, on the other hand, takes this offbeat bass and mixes in more Anglican drum and guitar structure to form a sound that is really easily characterized by the police themselves. Its roots are clear, but it is obviously different. Now, with all of the pieces in place, now is the time when I would normally get us into the next section. But recently, I've come into some knowledge about a just intensely radical opportunity that I have both the desire and impetus to share with all of you. On Thursday, October 20th in Denver, Colorado, I will be manning a booth at a concert experience where you'll get the chance to meet me and also, well, listen to some music and I guess, I don't know, see Nick Mason, the drummer from Pink Floyd with his saucerful of secrets band. And that's not all. Our parent network, Pantheon Podcasts, as an official partner to the tour, is hosting live podcaster interaction at a good majority of the concerts on the Echoes tour, starting in September. Even here in Denver, you won't just get to meet me, but also Matthew from Audio Judo and Corey from Song Facts. Tickets for other shows can be found at saucerfulofsecrets.com as well as the tour dates and other information, but what kind of opportunity would this be if we didn't have a little extra up our sleeves? In coordination with Pantheon Podcasts, we are giving away an exclusive VIP experience to see Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets. This is not a ticket package. This is not a money grab. This is a giveaway experience that starts with front row seats and really only gets better from there. Private exclusive merch tables, site-specific perks like priority entrance, and a pick-shaped necklace carved down from some of Nick Mason's own symbols. You can head to pantheonpodcasts.com slash nickmason or check the show notes after listening to get in on the opportunity. And don't forget to get tickets now at saucerfulofsecrets.com. I seriously can't wait to meet you. And with our recent coverage of Pink Floyd, I can't wait to get into the show and maybe even hear some of your own theories on Floyd's meaning. With everything now totally out of the way, and again with a complete lack of any more ado, it's time to get into it. Covering an iconic album from the late 70s and a piece of rock history that I'm all too happy to overanalyze, it's time to cover this week's episode, The Police's 
Regatta de Blanc. One of the biggest fears of any musician is the sophomore slump. After putting out an album that was their baby, toiled away at for years, demos and tapes that had been stewing in their subconscious constantly from the day they were conceived until they finally manifested into a passionate and emblematic representation of the band's identity, well, you run out of material. You used all of your best ideas in the first album because you wanted it to be the best that it could be. So when you have to go back to the studio, your debut a success by at least your standards, all you have left waiting for you is a bunch of music that wasn't strong enough to make it on the first album, or the sheer magnitude of the blank page staring you back in the face. Either use your own castaway material or make something new, completely from scratch, and do it with significantly less time than you had to make the debut. Because you're now on a schedule. This is a very daunting thought. And more often than not, this expectation to constantly improve breeds an aggressive version of imposter syndrome. The belief that you can't measure up to others' expectations of you. That you're not as talented as you may have thought. Because how are you supposed to do this so successfully again? It forms into a special kind of insecurity. Regatta de Blanc exists squarely within this tumultuous and frightful intersection, but instead of sounding like it was born of this insecurity, it instead channels that insecurity into a meta-commentary on the very idea of insecurity itself. That's right, you thought it was just white people reggae, and don't worry, we're definitely going to be talking about the controversial nature of that later, but no, it's actually a very perceptive and personal breakdown of the various ways that insecurity can manifest and how it can affect the world around you. If you don't believe me, just take a listen to the very first few lines of Song 10, Does Everyone Stare? I changed my clothes ten times before I took you on a date. I'm in a cold sweat, I panic, it makes me late. I know you never meant for this, I know. My shots will always miss, I know. My shots will always miss. I'm in a cold sweat, I panic and it makes me late. If anything, this song at the minimum is an insecurity song. Now, if you've listened to the podcast before, you may have noticed something strange right in the beginning here. We're not five minutes into the podcast, and I've outright told you about one of the key thematic ideas. I haven't even really explained how I came to this conclusion, just played one clip from one song in the back half of the album. But before you fret too much, all things will be explained in due time. But the main reason for the immediate drop is because this album is an absolute mess of theories and breakdowns already. We'll cover a bit of those in the second half, especially because I haven't really looked into them at all, as is my promise of no outside research. But from what I can tell from looking up the lyrics, half of the songs have some theory buried in the comments or lyric highlights, especially Message in a Bottle. So I'm getting out in front of it. I'm laying the groundwork out now. Now, insecurity explored from different environments is hardly a fulfilling through line anyway, so we need to expand on that. But first of all, how did we approach gaining this perspective? What about songs like Message in a Bottle or Walking on the Moon or Contact have to do with feelings of inadequacy? Well, how about a quick track-by-track track to look at the first few songs, a common staple here on the show. 
Message in a Bottle is a monster to look at. On its surface, it does feel alarmingly like a simple song about being in an unwinnable situation, trapped on an island sending messages out into the open sea in the hopes of rescue. However, as we'll see later through the examination of verse 3, we can instead look at this song as a depression song. All the messages are calls for help, SOSs, in the attempt at finding some small grasp of humanity or community to cling to, in the hopes of rescue. It's Alright For You tackles the fear of the unknown and the amount of bravery required to fight and exist in a world that seems on the brink of collapse itself. With the amount of risk involved in almost every activity, sometimes it's hard to know whether the right move is to jump in or stand back. Bring on the Night has a dual meaning. One side has someone who is again depressed, seeing nothing but pain and suffering in the relentless onslaught of blinding light and phony optimism of the day, longing for the end. But another side has someone who is so unsure of their future and their role in it that they long for that escape of night, that period of time where they can whisk away to dreams and forget about everything in life that actually needs to be taken care of. And Death Wish is about someone who is being reckless, presumably because something occurred that caused them to lose their will to live, or at the very least made it so they don't care one way or another what happens, just trying to find something that adds meaning or texture, including speeding around on a dark highway without abandon. So looking at those few songs, this is a lot having to do with depression and the fear of the future. But the key connector is this sense of being unsure. Unsure about his place in the world, his future, his bravery, his livelihood. And well, another name for being unsure is being insecure. Now you may have noticed that we skipped a song in the beginning. When we do these thematic searching sections, we cover the first few songs, in whatever order they take on the album, excepting special occasions, but one song exists between Message in a Bottle and It's Alright for You that I skipped. The namesake of the album, in fact, Regatta de Blanc. And the initial reason for the skip is that this song does not have any lyrics. It's entirely instrumental, save for some interesting vocalizations by our dear friend Sting that somebody has lovingly tried to phonetically type out according to Google's recommended lyrics. Here's looking at you, eo 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 yo. You may be asking yourself, how in the world does an instrumental song express insecurity? To which I'd like to point you to my breakdown of Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, a mostly instrumental album, and to which I'd also like to point out that an instrumental song on its own would struggle to express insecurity. But on the backbone of the assumption that it is about insecurity, take a quick listen to a section and see if you can hear the story taking place. There's a growing confidence throughout the song that culminates with this rather raucous fullness of sound. Even the singer's vocalizations grow in urgency and power, beginning with an interjection in the middle of every measure, then merging into a more singing-type exclamation that gets louder and higher and more sure of itself. The band picks up from a relatively quiet opening, adding more complexity and more instruments and more volume until it reaches that peak. 
There is a high energy to the entire song, which may go against the point, but insecurity is not calm. Rather, the song is turning this chaos into something stronger. This is a highlight, a sense of hope in the album, a growing into self-assuredness. And this is a theme throughout the entire album. While essentially all of the songs have an element of fear, loneliness, depression, or uncertainty, some have a sliver of confidence or clarity that peeks through. Even on On Any Other Day, a song steeped in an aspect of insecure masculinity and domestic sedation, there is a moment of realization buried in the denial and woe is me mentality in the third verse. Throw down the morning papers and spill my tea. I don't know what's wrong with me. The cups and plates are in a conspiracy. I'm covered in misery. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm covered in misery. These aren't fantastic feelings, but they cut through the self-pity and give way to an understanding that there is something wrong which is off-stated to be the first step to solving the problem to begin with. There is a silver lining. But on Regatta de Blanc, that power, that certainty that grew to rock the last minute, fizzles out at the end. The song ends in a fade-out, the future unclear, and what was gained is now lost to nothingness. There is no finality, there is no complete closure. And this is emblematic of the entire, the entire album. Every song on this album fades out, without exception. From the number one single to the farthest deep cut, none of these songs have an ending, and none of the songs even bleed into each other. Each exists alone as a separate exploration of its topic, left open-ended and unfinished. This idea even extends through the album artwork. The cover itself is a rather, well, blue affair, with the band's name in the top left corner in a bold font, and the band cropped into a claustrophobic blue graphic retaining box in the center, looking moodily toward the camera. The album name is in a handwriting script font, following one of the lines of the retaining box in the bottom right. Now, being a punk-adjacent new wave band, it's not a surprise to see this moody element. But what's actually a surprise and more revealing is its similarity to the art of their previous album, Orlando de Amor, which I probably super butchered. But getting back to the point, the band name is in the same place. The album name is in a script font, and the three bandmates stand in a pretty similar arrangement. However, they're more spread out, and the coloration of the album is much brighter. They still have moody expressions, but it nowhere near reaches the level of melodrama that Regatta de Blanc does. So why do this? None of their other albums are anywhere near following this trend, so it's not a stylistic theme. It almost seems purposeful and ties into this meta-narrative of insecurity in the wake of their debut success, a remark on the more serious and sophisticated direction they were hoping to take, and an important indication of the tone of the record. Despite the bright music, despite the driving force of the title track, this album is largely unsure of itself. And really, this is the point where we're going to enter into the second half of the breakdown. We've reached a good starting point for the storyline of the album, a firm first draft of its through line. 
Much like Hivemind, this album takes a fragmented approach to describing a theme, analyzing different experiences or perspectives on insecurity or depression in order to provide a fuller picture at a more complex, abstract idea. And it's likely that this album is taking a very metacritical look at their own band and songwriting in this sophomore album. But to get a more concrete picture, we have to go song by song. So let's do that, starting with the one everyone knows, Message in a Bottle. This song, being a cultural milestone for the band, has been torn apart by everyone. Much like my worries with Chasing Cars by Snow Patrol, this song elicits a particular meaning, likely subtly unique, to every person who listens to it. It evokes intense imagery and exists right on the border between clear metaphor and obscure allegory. Lines like, love can mend your life and love can break your heart, read like a heartbreak song, clear as day, someone marooned in the lonely, isolated island of the fallout of a relationship. But lines like, 100 billion castaways looking for a home, read vague, blurring the certainty of before. Take a listen to this line's verse. This complication of adding uncertainty to what seems like a clear read is a theme that extends throughout the album and adds texture to the idea that the album itself is about insecurity and uncertainty. That line could read as an empathetic sense of community, fostered with the countless others who are in heartbreak, but it could also be read as a reference to people looking for stability. A home is not necessarily a relationship or an actual house. It's security. It's belonging. If we recontextualize the rest of the song with this in mind, then the love being described in the line from before is the love from anyone. He's looking for connection, sending out an SOS, save our souls. And if we look at it from this angle, this song becomes more of a glimpse into depression. Depression, as it is understood, is often incredibly isolating, and the vast majority of the first verse is about this loneliness, rather than any explicit heartbreak. It even ends with a cry for help, calling out for someone to rescue him from this despair. In fact, the only line that is obviously about heartbreak, and even in this angle not even totally obvious, is the end of verse 2, talking about how love can mend or break your heart. Even the guitar solo in this song is nearly wailing, a full-bodied tone that sits in the higher register, similar to the artist's voice, even with its own moments of dissonant, anguished chords. But as we described before, it's not all doom and gloom. There is a moment of relief in the knowledge that he's not the only one asking for help. Others struggle too. Others have troublesome thoughts. Others go through difficult situations. But just as much as it would in real life, this feeling of belonging will quickly sour. Finding comfort in other people's suffering can only do so much to ease your own, and rarely will it help break the slump. 
Instead of a resolution, the immediate follow-up to this verse, and its moment of relief, is the chorus again, as he crafts another message and then an endless repeating of that SOS, with no reply. There's no salve here yet, but in Regatta de Blanc, there is a brief moment of escape. Just as much as mirrors depression or grief in real life, the highs and lows often come in waves. Some days we'll feel helpless, while some days, inexplicably, we'll feel something akin to baseline, or even in rare instances, exuberant. We've talked about this song quite a bit already, and its powerful rise before sobering fade out, but the really important thing I want to talk about regarding this song is the name, and subsequently the album's name, and subsequently a possible rumbling of controversy surrounding it in a core part of the police's identity. Yeah, we're going to briefly discuss sting, reggae, and cultural appropriation. Now, to be clear, this is not a call to cancel sting or the police. This is, rather, an attempt to start a conversation about what it means to culturally appropriate and the importance of taking a critical, informed approach to consuming media made in a different time. However, I do want to briefly mention that the very idea of cancel culture is not inherently a bad one. People should have consequences for their actions, that's why we have laws and the social contract to begin with, but especially actions taken knowingly at the detriment to someone else. Being bigoted, needless or targeted violence, sexual harassment, and other purposefully harmful behavior should be inexcusable outside of actual attempts for remediation and growth in some cases. However, making honest mistakes or being ignorant has not and should not be an immediate dismissal of legitimacy, excepting extreme circumstances again. On this note, however, the police and Sting's use of Jamaican vocal patterns as texture to their music is a prime example of harmful cultural appropriation. And I'll explain. Sting has proven that the police can function without that affectation, as numerous songs on this album show him ignoring this accent, for the most part. It's alright for you, contact, on any other day, does everyone stare, and to a lesser extent, death wish. That's half of the non-instrumental songs on the album. Of course, Stuart Copeland sings two of them, but still, that's a significant portion of the album that doesn't have this accent. Yet, on the other half, he fakes his interpretation of the mannerisms of traditional reggae singers as a texture to the sound, down to the pronunciation of specific phonetic elements. This is where the problem comes in. Something that is an intrinsic part of these singers' identity, an accent that exists as a part of their heritage, is being plucked by an artist completely outside of that world as an accessory, like jewelry. I mean, hell, they even called the album a loosely translated version of white reggae. Likely a harmless poke of fun at themselves, but coming close to alluding at taking the genre for themselves. 
In other words, well, appropriating it. This is one of the main complaints of true aspects of cultural appropriation. Bits and pieces of identity are cherry-picked like they're playthings, pacifying their history and meaning and context. This is not homage, nor is it harmless. The distillation of identity for the sake of entertainment is a precursor to the eradication of diversity. That's why things like Native American headdresses as costumes are examples of appropriation, and artists like Eminem generally are not. The headdress is an incredibly sacred and richly textured part of Native tribal history, which has in the past, and even sometimes still now, been used frivolously in costuming merely on the grounds that it looks cool. This reduction of identity is the problem. On the other hand, Eminem raps and is inspired by and evokes the sentiments of many rappers before and around him, including and especially black ones. However, he has actively, to my knowledge, avoided affecting identity elements of black rappers and musicians, including their speech patterns, instead paying respect to the genre of music on its own and its history, not just its connection to iconic aesthetic elements. Now, it is also important to know the context. Viewing all things from the context of the present ignores essential narrative, but it's not necessarily invalid. Perception is almost more important than intention, but it's naive to ignore intention completely. This album was released in the late 1970s, a time when Native American headdresses were rampant costume options, and making fun of basically any minority group was generally considered par for the course. Change was building, but it was not nearly widespread or even really considered, and as such, it's probably fair to assume that the police really didn't know any better. This is absolutely not an excuse. The fake accent is still completely fairly ridiculed as something akin to a microaggression. But it cannot be overstated that failing to look at the context of a situation will unfairly paint over what positive steps may have been taken, or important messages may be relayed by the art. Now there's absolutely a difference between the police and their likely non-malicious attempt to possibly even pay homage to the Caribbean pioneers of the genre, and someone like H.P. Lovecraft who was actually just a racist and should be overlooked in the annals of history. Overall, the most important takeaway is to know that there may be worthwhile lessons or even enjoyment out of semi-problematic to modern society things as long as one understands that they must be enjoyed through measured consideration of their effect and their legacy. And honestly, search out more information on this from diverse sources. I am not and should not be your ideal source. It all boils down to this in the end, really. Listen when people complain. Very rarely do individuals and communities speak out about something that does not harm them. Now, tangent aside, Regatta de Blanc fades out into another rocker with It's Alright For You. This song is absolutely breakneck for the album, and it mirrors what's going on in the verses. Just listen to this onslaught of words. Blind date, too late, take a bus, don't wait, stand by, don't cry, watching while the world dies. 
three quarters of the lines in this verse involve living at that breakneck speed. Wake up and immediately start making changes. If you're about to be late to that date, don't give up. Rush to a bus and make it there. References to movie stars and being famous. And finally, one last line in the middle, hidden away, tucked between this endless maneuvering. One of being a bystander in the spiral down of this world, happening at the speed of everything else and impossible to digest because of all of the everything else. The verses get darker and darker, referencing a funeral, a corporate deal, and then multiple points to death, self-harm, or violence back to back in verse 3. The song is intensely critical of nearly everyone, pointing to you and you and you as being complicit in the way things are going. All too cowardly or too bought into the system to want to make a change. Now this is a different theme. We were on depression for two songs, had a discussion about appropriation, and are now grappling with a complacent population? Well, notice that we began with a single person crying out for help, followed by a moment of resurgence before fading out. This fade out comes at the cost of the third verse in Message in a Bottle, where he notices that billions of others suffer the same issue, and in this song he's directing outward that anger, blaming society for the state of himself and the zombie state of others. And Bring on the Night sees an escalation and waypoint of this volatile mixture of depression and anger. As we mentioned before, this song has two possible readings, one of troubling thoughts about ending it all, and one about longing for the escape of dreams from the pressures of the world. But this doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Both of these ideas can exist together, as depressive thoughts are often connected with the idea of escape. The grind and hustle of modern society is exhausting, and can often lead some individuals to long for the periods of rest in between, while these same aspects of society can also be damaging to the psyche. And even then, with these readings being valid and easily defendable, there's even another way to look at the song, especially given the context of the first three songs. This is where the silver lining comes in, the small glimmers of hope or lightness that are hinted throughout the album. There's an urgency to the wish for the night, but there's also an expectation of tomorrow. Waiting for tomorrow, it's just another day. This is reserved and nowhere near joyous, but it is hopeful and helps lift the tone of the previous songs. But again, the following song recontextualizes it and drops into a valley of the constant waves of depression, Death Wish. Now, it doesn't really get any more obvious than this song in terms of intention. The day I take a bend too fast, judgment that could be my last, I'll be wiped right off the slate. There was an element of optimism in three of the last four songs, but it is entirely absent here. This song is the lowest low by far, an instance not necessarily of targeted intention to stop living, but one that wouldn't be too concerned if that were the eventual outcome. The song careens musically, much like the protagonist is taking the corners in their car, 
we've truly been riding the waves, the peaks and valleys of a depressive, searching-for-help state up until this point. Yet it finally all changes in Walking on the Moon. Now, it's been pretty obvious up until this point that the general consensus for each song is this is either a recovery or hopeful section or a downtrodden, difficult section of this long-term state. There hasn't really been a whole lot more to discuss other than some particularly scathing critique of hyper-focused, fast-paced society. But Walking on the Moon again introduces, or rather makes obvious, a pretty important thematic idea. You may have noticed up to this point that I've mentioned this concept of a meta-narrative a couple of times, but the term hasn't really been used to describe anything yet. A meta-narrative, for those unsure, is a story that through abstraction refers to itself or its own creation. We've already talked about the pressures that go into making a sophomore record, especially one that follows a well-regarded or famous debut. And these pressures are reflected in the lyrics, in the construction of the songs and their sound and placement. This album is truly about itself and the daunting pressures and expectations that go into constructing new art. Message in a Bottle is the blank slate, the fear of the unknown and the isolating nature of not having a backup, nothing to build from, a hundred billion ideas roaring in but few, if not none, useful. Regatta de Blanc is an exploration of sound and a brief moment of optimism before a paralyzing fear of the knowledge of a rapidly ever-changing world in It's Alright For You. There's an expectation here that they need to cover something important and the underlying fear that what they're doing is just participating in the failing ecosystem. The album then dips into a depressive state, just wanting it all to be done and over with, getting over it into the next part of their career, followed by Death Wish, a dangerous anecdote to the fragile nature of their position, but a strong push to risk it all or burn out. These songs here take on totally new life, elevating above the depressive state and into a commentary on insecurity and courage in exploring new medium and sound in art and music. And Walking on the Moon captures this fleeting and fragile idea of success. The moon here is the success, this floating feeling of bolstered fame that can be achieved. It's still rife with uncertainty and insecurity, however, with worries that their legs might break, but the chorus speaks to a resilience against the doubters that shows the first inklings of truly believing in their process. Some may say, I'm wishing my days away, no way, and if it's the price I pay? The band understands their dangerous position here, but essentially states that if it goes out, then it's something they're prepared for, worth it in the end for that success, that floating fame. The last repeating line, keep it up, is even reminiscent of a mantra, a meditative repetition meant to bolster their confidence and faith in themselves. 
It's an attempt to fight off the insecurities of before. And entering into the back half of the album, we get a confident, experimental, and explorative sound. On Any Other Day is an immediate departure from the songs before, entirely with a new, totally different vocalist and a brand new tone. At this point, the album is largely complete in its storytelling, its narrative instead converting into this exploration of sounds and topics rather than an expose on any specific idea. Each song builds on the last's confidence, covering insecurity from an outside perspective rather than recentering the discussion back toward the band and the album. That's not to say that these songs have nothing to say, but the next four all exist within the same act of the story. Let's cover them briefly. On Any Other Day, on the back of this newfound confidence, enters into irony, covering an aspect of fragile masculinity. It's incredibly self-pitying, with the main character having a slew of minor annoyances thrown at him and moaning about why this is happening to him. There are some more extreme issues that he encounters, but they seem to be more steeped in exaggeration than truth, meaning that he's instead making mountains out of molehills. For example, he complains that his wife tells him all about her love affairs, but just earlier in the same verse states that he cuts off his fingers in the door of his car. There's no reasonable belief that he fully severed his fingers in his door, much more likely just slamming them, which then begs the question of the legitimacy of his claims about his wife. Now, the chorus does show some more troubling circumstances. My dog just bit my leg. My teenage daughter ran away. These aren't great moments, but he again complains in the very next line that his fine young son turned out gay, which puts a highlight on this individual's character as likely being the instigator of its own issues, which itself makes his complaints that much more foundationless. The band is fomenting a real stance here, separate from their own issues, and critical of bigoted or baseless insecurity. The tone then shifts again, entering a new musical space, but one more similar to the rest of the album before, on The Bed's Too Big Without You. Here, the band is merging their typical sound with this new discussion of others' insecurity. A rather long-winded heartbreak grief loss song with little musical change, the band is working to find their rhythm here. There's really not a whole lot to say about this song other than that, but it is worth noting that the instrumental work on this song is quite notable. The album then uses the next song, Contact, as another discussion about itself, using the lessons from the previous two songs to pose a daunting question about the future of the band. is masked in the guise of a song about not knowing the current status of two individuals in a relationship and the excuses he makes to avoid confronting the problem. He'd head over there, but he hasn't got a raincoat. He's comfortable talking on the phone, his good connection after all never lies, but he is using that physical distance as a buffer for 
anything tangible, which is why he becomes so tied up about the physical letter she writes to him, a lump in his throat, a fear. But this song could also be about the band's connection to their fans. One of the most prominent feelings of many musicians is that the live connection to their audience is the most fulfilling. But there's an element of worry in this music. They are starting to feel confidence in the album's sound, this packaged and contained elements like the telephone, but are worried about making it come alive for their fan base. But just as quickly as these thoughts began, the back half culminates in the most stark example of insecurity and inadequacy in Does Everyone Stare? Almost every line of this song is just absolutely rife with nervous and self-deprecating energy, from his repeated insistence that all of his shots will miss with her, to the references to panic sweats and even self-critical references to his weight. And not only is this the summation of the feelings of insecurity, but it's also the culmination of these back four songs taking the stylistic endeavor of On Any Other Day, mixing it with methodical musicality of Beds Too Big, and powering it with some of the driving energy of Contact, a song that effortlessly straddles the surface-level examination of the album and its own meta-narrative about itself with style, substance, and clarity. The band is in full form here, confident, and on this feeling, we finally enter into the last song, No Time This Time. This is the ejector button. This song sounds absolutely nothing like the rest of the album. The sound mixing, the vocals, the tone is all much more in line with the previous album than this one. And in this difference, in this regression, we return back to the band's insecurity. While they had found confidence with the previous four songs, gaining insight into themselves and using their feelings of inadequacy to channel back into strong and explorative sounds, the band openly turns to the fears of the unknown and the knowledge that they have no time. No time at all. Just take a listen to the first verse. In the mad dash for fame and the understanding that they need to turn this album around on a faster timetable than their debut, they've reverted away from the exploration, falling back on the same tried and true tactics that made the first album succeed, and in doing so, lose the confidence to explore. Less time for intricacies of explanation, less time for caring, even less for showing. They can't pour any more effort into the album before it becomes all-consuming, and so they fall back into fear. And with this moment of weakness, we end the album, the churning apprehension about running out their chance to be successful. Even through the growth we gained, even through the confidence that was eked out, it returned in the end to familiar territory. One more safe, but less adventurous. One proven successful, but one lacking evolution. But this isn't necessarily the most awful thing that could have happened. 
One of the main aspects of life is managing risk, and many times people handle this by staying firmly within their comfort zones, refusing to take any substantial risk or entertain any new ideas. This album shows the imperfect nature of working to exist outside of this containment, pushing your boundaries and discovering what's new, what's interesting. Sometimes it will be two steps forward and one step back, but even in this event, that's still one step forward. And one step forward time and time again will eventually lead to change, to growth, and ultimately a better version of you and your surroundings. The Police did this album to album, growing their audience and growing their popularity, their last album their most successful. Even though they couldn't always resist the safety and security of their past, they tackled the insecurity and uncertainty of the future to continued success. And maybe that's the lesson at the end of this. Growth is not a smooth line, and insecurity is just an opportunity for reframable confidence. Stick around after the break for a conversation about what fans and the artists have said about the album. Christian here. Yes, it's still through line. You haven't been bamboozled, but where's the little sound thingy? Where's the conversation, the juicy dialogue? Don't worry, I have it queued up, my fingers hovering over the button, or, well, my cursor is ready to drag it in when I edit this together later. But before all of the conversing hullabaloo, I finally got a taste of every podcaster's greatest opportunity a promo code, and also, I guess, the ability to talk about a product they're actually excited about. Or, well, it's both a service and a product. One of the biggest problems that I have with putting together this whole throughline package is knowing how to give the people what they want. Which musicians to cover, how funny I should be if I should start a TikTok. But one thing that the people often want from a business or project or property they're passionate about is merch. And what better way to personalize your merch than with stickers? Sticker Mountain is an online experience that is dedicated to delivering you the best stickers and labels so that you can sell your products, grow your business, and focus on your passions. Simple interactive interfaces, competitive prices, and a support team that has the same passion and attention to detail as if they were right down the road from you come together into a package that's damn near impossible to beat. With tons of material options and bulk discounts on bigger orders, it's something that even I can't resist, and frankly, I'm a bit of an analysis nerd if you couldn't tell yet. Their color matching is a highlight and something they pride themselves on, and for good reason. At Sticker Mountain, you'll find everything you need to get the product labels, merch, stickers, and more onto your booths, into your stores, and into the hands of your customers. And by listening to this podcast, you've unlocked a special reward. For a limited time, you can use the code THROUGHLINE2022, all lowercase, to get 10% off your next order at StickerMountain.com. Make the most of it. Stock up. I can personally attest to the quality and care that goes into each order, and I'm confident you'll be excited you look them up too. Go see what they have at StickerMountain.com and use the code THROUGHLINE2022 for that lovely, lovely discount. Now, for all y'all that stuck around, time to hit that funny little sound button.
Hey everyone, welcome back to Throughline. We just got done talking about the album, and now we're going to have a quick conversation about what the artist and fans have said about the album. And I have with me today, police fan and special guest, my Uncle Mike. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Good to talk to you, Christian. Yeah, thanks for joining. I found this episode fun because when I first reached out to my dad for police albums to cover, he gave me two albums. And he's like, just pick one. Listen to Mm -hmm. both of them and pick one of them. And then when we were together just a couple of weekends ago, he said to me that he picked out those two albums because he wanted to cover an album and because you wanted him to cover an album. (laughs) So I was like, okay, you keep the album that you want to cover, which was Ghosts in the Machine, and I'll do Regatta de Blanc. And Regatta de Blanc was your pick. How did you get into this album in the first place? And how did you get into The Police in the first place? Oh, geez. Well, you know, that was literally back in the 70s. So I was very easily in high school and I didn't really have much access to it other than what's on the radio. We didn't have streaming back then, right? Right. I was getting into at the time what would have been considered alternative music, but it was punk new wave. Wildly different from the alternative of today. Oh definitely. And these guys came out more of the punk genre as opposed to new wave, although it was a bit of a crossover, you know, and then mm-hmm. there's the whole but you know, we had our uh, concession stand at that high school that had it was under the stairs and you know they'd have a big box of records that you kind of flip through and then there's the whole columbia house you know send them a nickel and they'll send you 15 albums Yeah, I've got this one and, you know, Zenyatta Mundata, and I just started listening to it, mostly from a musician perspective, not from a, anything else. You know, I was a, been a drummer all my life, and right. Stuart Copeland just had some really interesting variations that I had never heard before, and I'd never been exposed to any regular reggae or much jazz. I mean, in our house, you know, we were listening to Neil Diamond or Chicago. Right. <laughs> right. So it was really unique kind of playing that I tried to emulate and couldn't. So it was it was a fascination to me. Yeah, that was a surprise to me looking into the police because I've known the hits and police has always been a pretty prominent classic rock band, mm-hmm. but it always read a little bit lighter to me. And so yeah. going through and listening to this album, I was floored by how mm-hmm. instrumental, really talented a lot of these musicians were listening to some of the deeper cuts i was like oh they're really going for it and andy summers was squarely in the punk realm but he was also playing with you know robert fripps from king crimson Mm -hmm. and they were very into experimental these are sounds you never hear in the guitar kind of experimentation yeah and so the solos were discordant but really interesting it was just something so new and fresh to me that it was worth a listen. And I have to say that the punk stylings of it was a lot more fun. Right. And the other reggae stylings like Walking on the Moon and things like that were just, you, you sit and listen to it. Yeah. And you just kind of absorb yourself into it. Was the punk element of the album like, you were saying that it was one of those things that you were starting to get into. Yeah. What made this one more connect with you than their first album which was i would argue probably a bit more punk you know to be honest i don't know (laughs) i mean i had only heard roxanne 
Okay, yeah. From the first one and whatever had been on the radio. And it wasn't until hearing It's All Right For You. Right. That one specifically was just so much fun. Yeah, and it's right there in the edge of punk, but it's yeah. it's so much more rocky. Yeah, and the drum part was really, I'm always going to kind of focus on that, obviously. Mm-hmm. And typical punk or rock, you have a constant one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And it just, it keeps driving. But the way Stewart would play it, that, 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 that. And the stops and starts that was like, why did he do that? (laughs) But I'm glad he did because it was interesting as hell. Sure. And talking a little bit about that early punk influence, another one of the surprising things that I noticed while I was reading through different reviews and different interviews to prepare for this section, it seems like there was this really strong divide between people who started to believe that the band was selling out in their later albums and Mm -hmm. people who thought that they were actually being experimental and Mm. evolving. There is a review by Eric Benak on Culture Fusion Reviews, and he says, basically, there are two ways to look at this band as a complete sellout band that jumped from a once promising punk reggae band into an ego vehicle for Sting's pop pretensions and (laughs) desire for money. Or you can look at them as a cutting-edge band that successfully blended light, experimental, and texture tendencies with a rock and pop sensibility. Mm. Well, I do know that there was a ton of tension between the musicians, especially Sting being somewhat arguably called a control freak. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I watched a documentary where he was telling Stuart Copeland not to play Flams on this certain part and he just wanted a single hit on the snare and not <laughs> sound on it. And like, wow, he's telling the drummer, Stuart Copeland, how to play it? Right. Like, I, that wouldn't work for me. <laughs> right, yeah. I saw another section where there was a time when they were making Every Breath You Take mm-hmm. and Stuart Copeland wanted to add a hi-hat part and he added it when Sting wasn't in the studio and then Sting walked back into the studio after he had already left and Sting forced the mix person to completely remove it from the mix and then he left and then Stuart Copeland walked back in and he's like what what the hell happened (laughs) right right the interesting thing I think about their whole conflict as a band was that any review that you read like within the last five ten years Mm -hmm. all of the interviews that they have they consistently say that yeah we don't really have a problem with each other anymore (laughs) (laughs) Because they're not playing together. Right, yeah. (laughs) But what I found most interesting was that Stuart Copeland was doing an interview with Classic Pop Mag with John Earls. And he says that it's only now that we understand what our conflict was about and acknowledge that everyone's point of view was valid. And we had a very strong work ethic. Nobody ever shirked. Nobody stayed at home. All three of us were always leaning forward. And that's the personality in each of us that led to the conflict. Sure. One person was anointed the god of all music while the other two were still pushy sons of bitches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I know that like Andy Summers is so experimental and I'm sure that he was pulled back from the edge a right. number of times and ended up not being on the edge but being way in the background. But it kind of goes to show how much of a powerhouse this band was where even though they were having these issues, even though they were arguing and fighting, they were incredibly passionate and they were all passionate to the point where it led to their fights and problems with each other. But they still put out five of 
some of the best selling albums of all time back to back in like six years. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I went to the Ghost in the Machine tour Mm -hmm. in the 80s. And back in the Regatta de Blanc days, I'm sure they were playing tiny little houses. Sure. (laughs) You know, and they were putting in their dues and just working and working and working. And by the time they hit to Ghost in the Machine with those mega hits, they were stadium guys. And it was just, you think, oh, you're only going to see three guys, but they have a lot of support in the background you saw backstage so they had definitely evolved to something bigger mm-hmm. than what was on uh, Ricardo de Blanc. I personally don't understand the negativity toward being successful. One of the complaints about Regatta de Blanc is that it started to move away from being punk and there's mm-hmm. a review by Michael Gallucci in UCR where he says more than anything Regatta de Blanc separated the police from the punks once and for all. The music was just way more complex than most of the stuff their so-called peers were playing. And the fact that they made a second album that's better than their first went against the very grain of punk's core character. It wouldn't Mm. take long for that audience to denounce the police. You know, I see that all over, and that was back in the real, what we call the 90s alternative scene, Mm -hmm. that bands with a certain crowd, like the punk crowd, or the goths, or the alts, or the group that heard the band first mm-hmm. and they love it and it's their own now and it's counterculture and as soon as it becomes popular well they're out the door sorry right <laughs> sorry they they sold out it's like did they i think they just started making some bank and you, you know right you don't have them to yourself anymore i think some people are just oh, i don't want to say it, like they're just jealous <laughs> yeah and some people are not ready for the bands to evolve sure and we know that you know following rush for so many years and then pushing the envelope and you lose the hemispheres and 2112 crowd mm-hmm. by going to the next iteration of the band you know i'm sure that that happened with the police as well and they said okay yeah they're sold out as a why because everybody loves their music now yeah it maybe is a little bit more dreamy and poppy but things that don't change die right and it's not like they just entered into completely vapid territory there's a lot of really explorative thematic ideas in regatta de blanc Mm. there's a lot of conversations about very punk subjects that Mm. Really, the only difference being that the mix doesn't sound like garbage. <laughs> yeah, doesn't sound like the Sex Pistols anymore or right. whatever you're comparing it to. The different kind of mix and getting into some of the reggae styles, mm-hmm. like Walking on the Moon, I thought was just so cool. Right. I loved that song from the minute I heard it, and there's nothing special about it really, but the way that it bounced and the way that he, again, Stuart Copeland played this crazy syncopation on the hi-hats and mm-hmm. kept the time the whole time. And then it's this spacey, bouncy, just kind of sweet tune. Yeah. That introduction, that mix of reggae style sounds into their mm-hmm. music is such an iconic part of the police and really did garner this completely unique sound. Yeah. That mixture of sounds is such an important part of the way that music evolves and sound evolves but i i don't like his accent (laughs) (laughs) actually it's interesting you call it an accent 
I never took it as an accent. I just sure. took it. I heard it as, you know, kind of like when rappers run out of rhymes. So they say the same word over and over again. Sure. At the end of the phrase, it's that same word. It's like, well, yeah, word repeated will rhyme with itself <laughs> right. easily. Yeah. I don't know that the yo, yo, yo is necessarily reggae or saying, you know, there's no one here but me, oh, <laughs> you know, rescue me before I fall into despair, oh. Right. Okay. That made it rhyme. Sure. It's not a word. <laughs> They're not words, but he made it rhyme. And I didn't really see that as an accent as kind of, I don't know, lazy writing, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's plenty of instances in the police's catalog where he doesn't sing that way, that mm-hmm. he absolutely could have just used his regular singing voice for those other songs. I talked a little bit about the tricky nature that him taking some of those vocal patterns, how it doesn't necessarily hold up today. But there is a lot of evidence that he really did have an appreciation for that style of music. Oh, sure. Actually, I I was thinking about that earlier today, about the use of African tribal sounds with Paul Simon's work, or even uh, Peter Gabriel and some of the work that he did that had the African tribal sound. And I was unsure about it. Actually, I, I don't like listening to it. Sure. I never really got that from the police and their use of reggae mostly because they acknowledged it and they called it out by the title of the album. I had a discussion when I moved back from Japan and the guy was loading boxes into my house and he was like all into rap and he loved Kid Rock and like for some reason I could never get into it but he was like really into it and I said right. well yeah, yeah I like some raps yeah, I like 311 and he goes oh that's reggae. It's like what? He says that's reggae that's not rap and I'm like listening to it it's like oh yeah they do have some reggae sound but again, I never saw it as like taken from a culture per se. Sure. And maybe that's my own ignorance and not being introduced really to any heavy reggae kind of bands. Sure. I saw UB40 and Pine Knob. It's like, well, that's a lot of reggae. And right. Like, okay. So I don't think it's ever been considered, at least in the music realms, appropriation. But I could be wrong on that. I just, I never saw it that way. I saw it as an introduction of something that I had never heard before. Sure. And it was very unique how they mixed it with their new wave punk stylings, in my opinion. Yeah, my argument is more, it has less to do with the fact that they're using reggae sound at all. Mm. I think a lot of bands use reggae sound pretty successfully. Mm. They're invoking those ideas. And a lot of artists use other genres and mix them into their music. And this is how new sounds are created. But as far as I can tell, the one major difference I would say between 311 and The Police is that just thinking of Amber, it doesn't sound like he's phonetically mimicking Jamaican singers. And I think that that's where the issue that I have with some of Sting's vocalizations. But it's such a small amount that it's important to keep in mind, but I don't think he was doing it maliciously. I'm not sure anybody would unless, I mean, it was literal theft. Right. You know? <laughs> Have you ever heard of 12 Foot Ninja? 
No. There's a band out of Australia that really progressive, and they have some sounds that teeter, and the reggae sounds mm-hmm. that kind of bounce. It'd be something that I think you would really like. Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely give them a listen. And I think that the final part of this kind of conversation that I want to bring up is I want to quote Sting himself, and this is kind of defending his use of that kind of reggae sound. Okay. But again, I don't really have an issue with them using the reggae sound. It's more just the taking of the vocal pattern. But Mm. Sting does say, for me, it was homage to something that I love. I was brought up in England in the 50s and 60s, and we had a very influential West Indian community. So I grew up with Calypso and ska music and Bluebeat. And then Mm. when Bob Marley came to England, it was very revolutionary to me because he turned rock music on its head. The importance of the bass as a bass player that was hugely influential to me, the way the drums are played is completely different. And then Marley's philosophy, his spiritual message, his political message was very powerful. So he's obviously like very appreciative of the scene. And and I think that does come through a lot of their music. And I think that that's the reason why the police haven't had too many people come out and be like, hey, this is not good. (laughs) Yeah. And when they brought it out, it was... Well, new to everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't have immediate access to people's thoughts and ideas about such things Yeah, at the time. I don't know. It was an evolution. Yeah, and I think I definitely agree with that. And I think that the majority of people agree with that as well. And that mm. is such a powerful thing to say about a band, such an influential part of the rock scene from that period of time. They were interested in bringing texture to their music that people otherwise may not have had yeah definitely obviously i didn't have it right (laughs) you know i had been listening to something around the fringes but when that came out it was fresh right i think my final question in general was what did you think about the perspective that i brought to the album like what was your thought on the theme that i presented what struck me is that the music was like 180 degrees opposed to the feeling that just reading the lyrics Mm-hmm. gave me yeah and that suggests i don't know if it's mockery or defiance actually what it reminded me of was the blues sure yeah because i play the blues every thursday night i've been doing it for 30 years now playing blues music and yeah. it's happy way of being depressed sure yeah one of my favorite albums i always classify as it being tragic optimism because the music sounds so bright but the lyrics are <laughs> so sad (laughs) yeah actually the guitarist in the band that i was in back in the 90s he wrote a little blurb for us in the metro times the local rag advertising for us Mm -hmm. and he said we're not happy until you're not happy (laughs) and it just cracks me up because there's nothing unhappy about the sound and watching people dance to it for crying out loud right so that's what i was getting from the police especially the higher energy songs that are talking about making bad decisions while you're driving and, right. and things like that is like it didn't fit right and so i wasn't sure that it was a depressing album because every time i listened to it i, I never was sure but seeing how the you know, message in a bottle is a bit desperate yeah you know being alone on an island and finding out everybody else is alone on their islands too so they're not gonna come <laughs> come rescuing you 
because yeah. they need their own rescuing. It's kind of bleak, but you're dancing while it's bleak. I couldn't really put the two together. I think that's one of the most powerful things about the album, though, is this ability to have this almost depressive exploration of ideas mm. in the same breath as this really upbeat bright mm. music mm-hmm. and they're almost trying to match them together in a way that mirrors the growth of the band throughout the album the beginning of the album is a much darker more introspective look at the album being created and the band's worries about the album and that earlier depressive state and mm. then there's so much more confidence that grows in the second half the music is brighter constantly Contact is so bright, like yeah. musically. Yeah, they didn't really exude insecurity in the execution. Right. I thought it was interesting how you notice that all of the songs fade out. Mm-hmm. And you would say that it was left unfinished. And I thought about, as a musician, I have never been able to successfully play a song live that fades out. You have to come up with some kind of ending. Right. <laughs> right. So then why would they do that? Why would they put a fade out in? Well, if you're repeating something at the end, you can repeat it and totally make a two-minute song a four-minute song. Sure. (laughs) And basically stretch it out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I never applied that logic to it, knowing that the lyrics were kind of depressing and nothing was finished for the character in the song. Mm-hmm. And it just ends or, or fades away and, and doesn't even bleed into the next one. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I just it felt like they were almost worried about not having a fitting end for each song. Well, I've been there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Uh, the songs that you're hoping to get, someone figures out how to end it. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be playing it for an hour. Right. You know, in a live setting. And some of their songs have almost have like a minor key, which has typically no resolution to it yeah so without a resolution you have to kind of transfer and make it a major key and end it and like i don't want to do that yeah just let it fade and for and honestly for anyone who is upset that this album isn't very punk not ending your songs is pretty punk (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely actually the very last song no time this time yeah that was complete punk and had that form and maybe that was blowing a kiss to the fans that thought that they had left the room you know sure you know, yeah. Say, yeah we haven't forgot you we want to give you one right so i think that about wraps it up i wanted to thank you so much for joining me and talking to me about the police yeah thank you for giving me the opportunity to expound and to, to talk to you again it was good seeing you a couple weeks ago and it was really nice to speak to you tonight yeah it was great and i do want to cover Catherine wheel at some point so mm. i'd be happy to have you back on again when we cover ferment yeah awesome you know i'd love to that album's got big part of corner of my heart well with that i think that we're going to wrap up with this week's episode of Throughline with the police's regatta de blanc and remember everyone you can still make punk music while it sounds good. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 